Uh, our speaker, our main speaker today, I can't quite believe that we, you know, she's here. It's just amazing. Amy Orr Ewing is just one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. Uh, she's a mum of three kids, uh, married to Frog. They planted a church together uh, called Latimer Minster in Buckinghamshire, which is growing like Billio. Uh, she's also the uh, European, Middle East, and African uh, director for RZIM. She has committed her life to helping believers think and thinkers believe. She's also a director of the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. In that capacity, she's spoken in the White House, in Parliament, and on Blue Peter. Uh, she's written a bunch of books, uh, one about extreme Islam, uh, one about how we can trust the Bible, which is our first talk earlier today. Uh, her latest is called Millennials, and uh, she is just the most extraordinary speaker. So please put your hands together, fresh from the Blue Peter Studios, <laughs> Amy or Ewing. Thanks for that welcome. It's so wonderful to be here with you and to hear of the work in Cambodia as well. What a privilege to be part of this family of the church. It's amazing, isn't it? So um, today I've been asked to, to, to look at a few different questions. So we've looked at why I trust the Bible in the first service. And in this service, we're going to be looking at is Christian faith really credible? Is it really credible? And I wonder if you've ever felt put on the spot by um, someone hearing you're a Christian and their face falling and they clearly think that you are a lunatic, an idiot, a Bible basher. They, they just want to get away from you as quickly as possible. It can be um, a frightening experience to, to be in that situation and to, to hear what people honestly think about our faith. The story is told of a a grandmother who was giving evidence in a trial in Mississippi in the south of the US. And um, the prosecuting lawyer was on his first trial ever, and he calls this grandmother to the stand. He, he's her first, he's, she's the first witness, and he says, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? He thinks, I'll ask her an easy question to, to get things started. She says, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people behind their backs, you think you're a big shot, you haven't the brains to realise that you will never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher, I know you. The lawyer was stunned and not knowing how to get out of this situation, he points across the courtroom and says, what about him, the lawyer for the, for the um, prosecution, do you, do you know him? She says, oh yes, I do, I've known Mr Bradley for years. He's lazy, bigoted, he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone. His law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention he cheated on his wife with three different women and one of them was your wife. Yes, I know him. The lawyer nearly dies. At this point, the judge asks both of them to approach the bench and says, if either of you two idiots asks her if she knows me, I'll send you both to the electric chair. <laughs> Is faith in God credible? Is it reasonable? Is it rational to be a Christian? Well, the honest answer that most people, the majority of people in Britain would give today is no. Faith is seen as in some way an embracing of irrationality. 
In other words, if something's patently true, you believe it. If something's blatantly out there, it requires faith in order for you to believe it. Faith, some people would say, is a kind of psychological crutch. Sigmund Freud popularized this theory that God is the ultimate wish fulfillment. We have this desire for the ultimate father figure to exist, so we've projected out of our own psychological need that God in the sky, the big father figure, but there's no reality to it. It's just wish fulfillment. Of course, C.S. Lewis pointed out that you can make the same argument about atheism, that it's the ultimate desire for there not to be a father figure in the sky, and you've projected the non-existence of God. But nonetheless, most people go along with that. They think faith is, you know, it's nice for you, you lovely spiritual people who want to be in church on Sunday. It's, it's, it's a function of psychology, though. Or perhaps it's a function of culture. Faith is a superstition that's been passed down through families and you kind of like that sort of thing. I, I like other kinds of things, but you know, you're welcome to it in your family or in your culture. But how dare you go and try and impose that on another culture? That would be imperialism. That might be patriarchy. That might be quite dangerous. Greg Kukul sums up the popular view of faith. He says, faith is religious wishful thinking in which one squeezes out spiritual hope by intense acts of sheer will. People of faith believe the impossible. People of faith believe that which is contrary to fact. People of faith believe that which is contrary to evidence. People of faith ignore reality. That's a leading sociologist. That's his diagnosis. Now, it's really interesting when we come to read the New Testament and we see how the Bible talks about faith. Even the very word that is used for faith in Greek, the, the root is pistis. And that means to be persuaded. It means someone who has been persuaded is someone who has faith. Faith, in other words, is a kind of knowing that results in action. Christian faith isn't belief in the absence of evidence. Christian faith is a proper response to evidence. So today, as we spend a few moments thinking about this, is faith in God, is Christian faith credible? We're going to try and take some key points of Christian faith and ask at each point, at each moment, is this credible? Is this a warranted belief? Is there evidence for this belief? And we're going to see how this thing stacks up. Now, obviously, there are loads of ways we could come at this, loads of ways we could define Christian faith. We could do the Nicene Creed, and Pete mentioned that you guys have been going through a series on that um, a little while ago. That served the church pretty well, but we don't have time to go through every point of the Nicene Creed. So I just want to draw out four points and ask at each moment, is this credible? So firstly, Christian faith involves belief in an intelligent creator who made the world seen and unseen. In other words, matter, the material world, but also immaterial reality, metaphysical reality. Secondly, Christian faith upholds belief in a creator who is the reference for moral order in that world. Thirdly, Christian faith entails the belief that God has entered human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And that after Jesus was crucified, he was actually raised from the dead. It entails belief in the resurrection. 
And fourthly, Christian faith involves the belief that there is new life and actual ontological, that means real um, at the level of your being, actual ontological change, transformation that happens to a human being who comes into contact with that God and accepts his forgiveness. Okay, it's a tall order. Let's start with number one. Belief in an intelligent creator who made the world seen and unseen. Is that a credible belief? Is it a warranted belief today? Christian belief in God as creator is actually often the starting place for the assumption that believers are irrational. Now we have science, the thinking goes, there's this kind of ever-diminishing space for God to inhabit And behind that is the idea that all belief in God is a kind of belief in a God of the gaps. In other words, the idea that where there are things that are unexplained, religious people say, well, God did that. But as that number of things that are unexplained gets less, as science explains more things, there are less things to say, well, God did that. And so we don't need him anymore. The God of the gaps is leaving. He's out the back door. The God did it, so uh, because I can't understand it, God must have done it. Now, that understanding of God, a God of the gaps, has never been a Christian understanding of God. God, as an explanation for the creation of the universe, is not in direct competition with a scientific explanation. Let me give you an example. My brother-in-law is a very bright, um, intelligent person. He works as an aeronautical engineer for the Ministry of Defense. I can't tell you, um, go into detail about what he does, but let's just say that the hardware that he designs is extremely complicated and it's impressive. The Americans have bought it, let's put it that way. Now, when a pilot takes hold of a machine that Simon has designed, would he be wrong in thinking that because we know the laws of thermodynamics and because we can know the mechanical theory behind the equipment, there is now no need for Simon. Well, we would say, of course not. My colleague at the Ocker, Professor John Lennox, professor of maths at at Oxford, um, wrote this. He said, the Christian God is not a God of the gaps. He's the God of the whole show. Christians have never believed that God is just an explanation for that which cannot be understood. God is behind our capacity to understand at all. Science um, doesn't dispense with the need for God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He said, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a law giver. Now, regardless of where we stand, whether we're atheist, agnostic, or theists, we believe in God, we all, when we come to look at creation, believe that something extraordinary happened. Either we think that God created this complex, massive universe, or we believe that the universe popped into existence with cosmological laws and constants so finely tuned for life, out of nothing and by means of nothing. Um, As Pete said, I have three children. My two oldest are twin boys. They're 10. And um, they they love God and they love talking about God. And most of their friends at school um, aren't necessarily from Christian families or um, church-going families at all. 
A few uh, months ago, I was driving them to a sports event and we were just talking and that one of them said, oh, so-and-so was really, really mean today. They said, only really stupid people believe in God. And I said, oh, what did you say? And um, uh, the, the twin sitting in the front seat turned to me and said, well, mummy, you know, it was actually quite mean because he went on to say that, you know, people, uh, only stupid people believe in things they can't see. I said, well, what did you say? He said, well, I did point out that he believes in things he can't see as well. And I said, well, like what? He said things like, well, love, thought, language. I thought, go boys, that's brilliant. <laughs> then behind me from the back seat piped up um, Zach, my second twin, who said, yes, and then we told him all about fine tuning. And I looked at him and said, what do you mean? He said, well, the fact that the universe is so finely tuned for life, it's so complex. Isn't it a better explanation that that's been designed? Whatever we believe, whether we believe it's popped out of nothing or there is a creator, we believe something extraordinary. The atheistic naturalist worldview will tell us that selfish genes fighting for survival through this process of evolution have brought about what we might refer to as human beings with a product of blind matter, chance and time. The entirety of our framework is controlled by our genes and it's geared towards the aim of that process, which is survival. And it's not geared to understanding truth. John Gray, one of Britain's leading atheists, puts it this way. He says, the human mind serves evolutionary success, not truth. That's a fascinating statement. If you flip that the other way around, you think about it, what does that mean? If we believe we're the product of blind matter and chance, why do we trust our minds at all? to reveal truth, the assumption of natural law, the assumption of rationality within the material universe is based, I would argue, is predicated on it being designed. It seems to me at least that it is rational, it's reasonable, it's a warranted belief to believe that there is a creator for the universe, material and immaterial. Secondly, belief in a creator um, who is the referent for the moral order in the universe. Well, philosophers might put it like this. They might say, if God doesn't exist, objective moral values don't exist. Moral values can be there without God. They can be out of our personal preference or they can be created by societies, but they're not absolute. They're not objective. They're subjective. They're perhaps consensus-based or they're personal. The atheist philosopher Paul Kurtz puts it like this. He says, the central question about moral and ethical principles concerns their ontological foundation. That means they're the, the sort of basis. If they're neither derived from God nor anchored in some other transcendent ground, they're purely ephemeral. Michael Roos, um, another atheist, argues that morality is just an aid to survival. There's no deeper meaning. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote about it like this. He said, the existentialist finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with, with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There can no longer be any good a priori since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. 
It's nowhere written that the good exists, that one must be honest or must not, one must not lie, since we are now upon the plain where there are only men. Dostoevsky once wrote, if God did not exist, everything would be permitted. And that, for existentialism, is the starting point. Everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist. And man is, as a consequence, forlorn, for he cannot find anything to depend upon, either within or outside of himself. John Lennox puts it like this. He says, science can tell us that if you put strychnine in your grandmother's tea, it will kill her. Science cannot tell you whether you ought or ought not to do so in order to get your hands on her property. If morality is not rooted in reason, where is it rooted? Preference? Taboo? You know, the prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials heard the defense time and time again saying that the SS guards on trial were just following orders, and they were of the democratically elected government. What they did was legal, based on consensus morality. How can we now say it's wrong? After hearing this defense many times, the prosecuting lawyer threw up his hands and said, yes, but is there not a law above our own laws? I suggest to you that if there is an objective basis for morality, and I think a good argument can be made for it, that is good evidence to believe that God exists and is the foundation of morality. If God doesn't exist, there is no moral lawgiver beyond us as humans and no absolutes. We make our own morality. But is that the more rational position? Do the facts of our experience cohere? For the Christian, the evidence is all around us and inside of us pointing strongly to the conclusion that good and evil are real categories that transcend our own personal preference. In 1910, the Times ran an article entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And the next day, G.K. Chesterton famously wrote the following reply. He said, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Is Christian faith warranted on the basis of the universe existing at all, design, on the basis of morality, and thirdly, the belief that God entered history in the person of Jesus Christ? We don't have a lot of time to go into details on this one, but perhaps we might just spend a few moments thinking about his resurrection since we're coming up to Easter there are three historical facts about his resurrection that are agreed on by scholars. On the Sunday following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty. On separate occasions, different individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive again after his death. And at one time, this was a crowd of 500 people. And thirdly, the original disciples suddenly to came, came to believe in the resurrection, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Now, there isn't really a plausible naturalistic explanation for these three facts. Various theories have been offered. Someone stole the body. Jesus wasn't really dead. He swooned. Somehow the Romans maybe didn't know how to kill or a severely injured Jesus removed a massive stone and single-handedly took out a Roman platoon at the tomb. Uh, no contemporary evidence for it. 
No explanation offered has really made sense. And those who investigate this often find themselves persuaded that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Professor Richard Swinburne, professor of philosophy um, at the University of Oxford for years, one of the leading minds of, of his generation, recently came to speak at the OCCA. And he did a piece of research on the resurrection of Jesus based on probability theorem. He took Bayes' theorem and assessed the, the various likelihoods of different factors around the person of Jesus and his life and death. And in the course of this study, he concluded that it is 97% probable that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And then as one of the elite philosophers of this generation, he traveled to academic conferences defending that thesis. I suggest to you today that it is credible, it is reasonable to deduce from the evidence that a miracle has occurred in history and that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then fourthly, belief that there is new life and ontological change in human beings who meet God. You see, we all operate with different kinds of evidence all the time. We make decisions on the basis of different kinds of evidence, some intellectual, some historical, some philosophical, some scientific. And all of those components are important. But ultimately, Christian faith is not primarily an intellectual position. It's not primarily about ideas. At the heart of the Christian faith is an offer of relationship with a personal God through Jesus. And if he's actually there, it's surely reasonable to respond to him, to come to know him. If the truth about God is purely intellectual and we can define it in terms of science or we can define it in terms of philosophy or we can define it in terms of history, that's not actually gonna help me very much unless the truth about him actually connects with the truth about me as a human being. And there are various truths about me that I need a God, if he's real, to actually connect with. The first truth about me is that I'm anxious and that I need a deliverer from fear. Fear is an extraordinary, powerful force. Studies show that most people's anxiety is preoccupied with 40% of the time things that will never happen, 30% relating to the past that can't be changed, 12% relating to other people's criticism, which is generally untrue, 10% relating to health, which often gets worse with stress and negative thinking, and only 8% of the time do we worry about real concerns that we need to face. The story is told of a woman who couldn't sleep at night. She was worried that she was going to be burgled. And her husband was rather fed up of this after 20 years. But one night, her husband also heard that noise. And so after a big dig in the ribs, he went downstairs to investigate. And when he got there, he did actually find the burglar. And he immediately said, oh, please come upstairs and meet my wife. She's been waiting 20 years to meet you. <laughs> a real burglar can steal from us once, but fear is a thief. Anxiety is a burglar stealing life from us. Jesus Christ claims to be able to deal with 
fear. Jesus Christ said, no amount of worry can add one hour to our lives, therefore why worry? He invited us to meet the God whose perfect love casts out fear. You see, the truth about him is all very well, but if it doesn't connect with the truth about me, what's it for? Why does it matter? The Christian faith, the truth about him, is that he knows and understands the truth about me. The truth about me is that I'm alone in this universe and that I long for relationship. I've been created for relationship. And God offers us that himself by giving himself. He claims that we can come to actually know him, not just know about him, not know information, but know him, come to meet him. Third truth about me is that I'm broken. I need forgiveness. It was the brilliant writer um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn who was imprisoned by Stalin for writing poetry. And he was put in the gulag and his experiences in the gulag where he saw Christian pastors being beaten and kicked to death caused him to reevaluate his own beliefs and he met Jesus in the most amazing way. But he wrote in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, he talks about the human condition and he said this, if only there were some evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But he said it's not like that because the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties but through every human heart and all human hearts. The truth about me is that I need forgiveness and God's truth connects with that. You see... If we really are going to trust this God and come to know him through Jesus, it doesn't just need to stack up, stack up intellectually, and I think it does need to stack up intellectually. It also needs to make a real difference to me. Matthew Paris, um, one of Britain's leading atheists, writes for The Times, and a while ago he wrote a piece reflecting on his experience growing up in Africa and he went back to visit the place that he'd grown up and he wrote a piece about it. It was an absolutely fascinating piece. I just want to give you a short um, quote from it. He said, now as a confirmed atheist I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. He says, I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital and say the world would be better without it. I would allow if faith was needed to motivate the missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. He writes, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. 
I think that's a fascinating verdict by one of Britain's leading atheists. And I suggest to us today that it at least ought to cause us to pause and wonder, is that true? Not just, is it true that God created the universe, that that's the best explanation for the reality that we're in? Not that just that God is a foundation for moral reasoning, or that God entered history in the person of Jesus, but that all of those truths actually connect to me. And as we finish, I just want to finish by asking the question, how does he do that? How does Jesus connect to us in our anxiety, in our brokenness, in our need for forgiveness? Well, ultimately, he does it by going to the cross. And this is very familiar if you've been around church a lot. But it's actually amazing to take a moment to think again what it actually meant What does God on a cross actually mean? A cartoon has been found on the ancient walls, ruins of walls in Rome, and it depicts how people thought about and processed the Christian message of God on a cross in a culture where deities were utterly separate, utterly selfish, utterly indulgent, and just called people to to do things for them, a works-based religion. The image is of a man's body hanging on a cross, but the body has the head of a donkey. It's a grotesque image. And underneath this picture of a man's body dying on a cross is a young man kneeling down and worshipping this horrible image. And underneath the inscription reads, he worships his God. It's a satire of Christian faith. How could you worship a God of weakness, a God who's defiled by crucifixion? It's amazing. The crucified God, utterly extraordinary. Yet Gandhi wrote, the cross of Christ is the most overwhelming aspect of the Christian faith. It is singularly unique. God doesn't ask you to meet a certain level intellectually or morally before you can know him. Because he understands the truth about us. He comes to meet us through Jesus, welcoming us as we are in our weakness, in our brokenness. His love revealed for us on the cross, the God who suffers with us and for us, who doesn't leave us alone in our mess, Remember my five-year when my seven-year-old was five, he's called Benji, and he's a brilliant tennis player. And that involves me driving him around um, to lots of places. But he suffers terribly from car sickness. And we'd stopped at a petrol station, and he was standing with me as um, when the twins were there as well. We were there, the four of us, and he started to cry, and we all knew what was going to happen. We knew what was coming. His bottom lip was going like this. His face looked green. And the twins started backing off, shouting, he's going to blow. And I found myself, without thinking for a moment, I just sprinted from where I was paying to my son. And I gathered him into my arms as he erupted with vomit all over me, in my hair, all over the floor. A small crowd gathered as the twins were shouting, it's disgusting, it's awful, and they were clapping. Um, We're not a dramatic family at all. 
And uh, as we drove away, I was thinking about it and reflecting. Why did I do that? Because I want to be the kind of mother who is cheering my son on when he's achieving, when he's successful, when he's doing what he was made to do and he's brilliant at it. And I want to say, well done, I'm for you. But I don't want that to be the only story. I also want to be with him in his moments of brokenness and weakness because that's what love looks like. The truth about us connects with the truth about God in the person of Jesus as he comes for us in the cross. God doesn't stand by impassively saying, believe this, think this, know this. He comes to us in a way rooted in evidence so our questions can be dealt with. We're not being deluded, but in a way that is personal, inviting us home to be with him. Amen.